We're going to do verses 1 through 9 of chapter 42. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless not just the reading of your word, but the exposition of your word. Cultivate in us again that sense of gratitude and that sense of longing to be grateful for the ways in which you have already fulfilled this passage in the sending of your Son, but also to long for the ways in which you will send him yet again to bring it all to completion. Father, grant us perseverance through the truth and in the power of the Spirit. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Forty-three years ago, President Roosevelt said it was the day that would live in infamy. It was a day in which the majority of Americans, I'm sure, sensed outrage, a perceived sense, a real sense, I would say, of injustice, because something very wrong had happened that day. A, a sense of injustice very similar to what many experienced this week with uh, hearing about what happened in the Gardner case in New York. A strong sense that something wrong has happened. Let's think about that for a moment. Where does this sense of injustice, this sense of wrongness in the world come from? Because it's almost universal in its scope. Let's think for a moment of where it comes from. Let's think for a moment of the answers that those outside of our faith would hold. Fyodor Dostoevsky and the brothers 
Karamazov explores some of this a little bit. You're all familiar with the, probably the famous line, which I'll get to in a moment. But earlier there's a this statement. If there's no God and no life beyond the grave, doesn't that mean that men will be allowed to do whatever they want? Didn't you know that already, he said and laughed again. The, the idea, the premise there in the Brothers Kazmarov is that, as it, the, the famous line goes, if there is no God, then everything is permissible. And if everything is permissible, then there can be no such thing as injustice. It's only just, it didn't go the way I wanted it to, not necessarily a sense of injustice. Now, our, our friends and loved ones who don't agree with us on that principle have a different sort of understanding of these things. But first, let's hear from Neil Postman, who I don't think was a Christian. But he points to the, where people were pointing, or he addresses where people were pointing in his day and still do in our day. He says this, <clears throat> but in the end, science does not provide the answers most of us require. Okay, he's not anti-science. Don't hear him that way. He's just talking about the limitations of science. Okay? Its story of our origins and of our end is, to say the least, unsatisfactory. To the question, how did it begin, science answers, probably by an accident. To the question, how will it all end, science answers, probably by an accident. And to many people, the accidental life is not worth living. Moreover, the science god has no answer to the question, why are we here? And to the question, what moral instructions do you give us? The science god maintains silence. So Postman is arguing that in a world in which God is removed from the picture, in the world that uh, we are the product of an accident, that there is no overarching purpose that goes on, there is no basis for answering these important questions that haunt the human soul. Why am I here? Why do I belong? Where, what am I to do? What is right? What is wrong? That goes back to what is an injustice and what is justice? If there is no absolute sort of standard, then all that it is is cultural convention. My, the, the desire of my people, my tribe, so to speak, contrary to the desire and tribe of, of your people, your group. And so all you have is interest groups, special interest groups, fighting with one another to get what they want under the guise of justice. Now there's been pushback. There's a guy named Ted Harris, and I came across this this past week. He did a TED Talk back in 2010. Uh, Sam Harris is a neuroscientist and a philosopher. And he was saying in this little, it's a TED Talk, so it's short, so you can only say so much in a TED Talk. Um, but he's saying <clears throat> essentially that to separate morality or values and science, as Neil Postman does, is wrong. He says that values are facts about the well-being of conscious beings. And, of course, in that he, he kind of lumps the animals as well because we're just like them. You know, we come from them in that worldview. 
He says that we know that there are right and wrong answers in the space between good and bad outcomes. And so he lays out a moral landscape of good and bad outcomes and says, there's numerous possible good outcomes, numerous possible bad outcomes. And so uh, we, we can, science can give us answers to these questions of how to have more good outcomes as opposed to bad outcomes. But how do we know that an outcome is bad? What is the basis upon which we can judge that outcome as good or bad? How do we know what human flourishing is? These are questions that he doesn't really get to. I'll give him credit. It's only a 20-minute talk that he gave. He says that there may be many peaks in the moral landscape, ways for humans to thrive. How have we convinced ourselves that in the moral sphere there is no such thing as moral expertise or moral genius. And of course, most of what he does in the midst of those 20 minutes is attack various religions that we would call, I would call, extreme for their lack of moral expertise. And so he's trying to distance people away from the demagoguery of religion and somehow back into science as giving values. But science really can't give values apart from this, what Bonson would call the stolen capital of Christianity. The knowledge that there is a right and there is a wrong. And the light that shows us what it is. Kind of back in all this mix. I like this quote by Keller. Secular culture says the meaning of life is happiness. And that fits in with that idea of human flourishing that uh, Sam Harris was talking about. But here's where Keller, I think, devastates it in a sense. If that's the meaning of life, then suffering destroys your meaning. Because suffering seems to be the antithesis of flourishing. But how many of us have, in the long run, flourished because of short-term short suffering? We need a bigger picture. Much bigger picture. That's why we, I think we need the scriptures. And we need particularly what this text is talking about this morning. My big idea this morning is that the Son came as a servant to bring light and justice. It's a little different from what you have there. I changed it this morning. Forgive me. But the Son came as a servant to bring light and justice. And I want to start with the notion that the Son is also a chosen, gentle servant. We have to put this back, we have to keep this within the context of what has just happened in Isaiah 41 because they're related. They're related in a number of ways. Partially in that he, he talks about Israel as his servant. And we'll get to uh, that again in a little bit. But we see the weakness of Israel in chapter 41. But at the very end of chapter 41, there's two times he uses that word behold. In verse 24, Behold, you, speaking of the idols, are nothing, and your work is less than nothing, an abomination is he who chooses you. He speaks again about the idols in verse 29. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their mental images are empty wind. Isaiah 41 speaks of Israel, God's servant, as weak and fearful. But we must also behold the emptiness of idols. 
Now, he starts off with this new chapter. Okay, remember, the chapters weren't there in the original. Behold. They've beheld the worthlessness and destruction that idols bring, but now look. Behold someone different. Behold, look to, examine my servant. He wants us to behold someone far greater and far more substantial than Israel and the idols, his servant. Because he is going to bring forth, remember from Isaiah's perspective, he's going to bring forth a worthy servant to accomplish what feeble Israel never could do. And we have to keep that in mind. Israel always had this calling to be a light to the nations. And they had always consistently failed in fulfilling that calling. And so the father is going to send a son, his son, who will faithfully fulfill all of the hopes and dreams that he had placed, so to speak, upon Israel. And so we see initially that the son is a chosen servant of the Lord. In other words, he is the right man for the right job. I've told you before about some of my experiences in uh, the work-study program at RTS, and one of the, the fun ones was when I was the wrong guy for the wrong job. When I was working in admissions, and I, who had one class in computer programming, and who hated it, okay, it didn't make sense in my brain to get computer programming. It was very counterintuitive and all this fun stuff. And so I was tasked with building a database. Wrong guy. Okay? That's just not how my brain operates. But I was called to do this. They should have identified the first guy. I mean, in the first place, they should have identified my friend Richard, who does great in that stuff, but not me. This one is the right guy. Okay? It's not like the first warm body, that's the one. He has prepared this one. He has sent this one for this very important task. What he does, he says, as well, thy chosen servant whom I uphold or who I, whom I grip fast. They're steadfast in the Father's hands, is the Son. And how does he do this? How does he keep him? I put my spirit upon him. We've got to see that within the parallelism of this Hebrew poetry, these two things are connected the upholding happens through the placing of the Spirit upon him. And so we see that the servant does all that he does in the power and the wisdom of the Spirit. He does not accomplish these great things in his own strength. He does not accomplish them in his own wisdom, but he accomplishes them precisely in the power and wisdom of the Holy Spirit. It is important for us to remember that because no mere man, as Calvin notes in our reflection, can do this awesome task. The Spirit must come. But why is he held fast? Why is he protected? Because this is the one in whom my soul delights. In other words, the Father treasures the servant son. He is precious to him. That is why he upholds him, why he keeps him, why he empowers him, why he sent him to do this very thing. Do you see the connections when we, to John's gospel? And all the ways in which we talk about Christ, 
as the, as the first apostle, as the one who has been sent by the Father, as the one of whom the Father's delight rests upon, who has been empowered by the Holy Spirit who came and rested upon him, it's all right here too. That's just a fulfillment of what we see right here in Isaiah 42. But notice this as well. Luke 3, the baptism of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am very well pleased. And so we see there at the baptism of Jesus both of these things. We see the, the, the Spirit being placed upon him in the form of a dove, as well as, I am pleased, or I delight. The Father delights in His Son. His Son is faithful. There's something very important for us to keep in mind about that. And that is, if we are in the Son, then He also delights in us. Okay? We can think of the many ways in which we failed, and many of us are probably very good at remembering those ways in which we have failed. We're very good at bringing those back to our memory and beating ourselves up with them, but we need to remember passages like this. If we are in the Son, He sees us as He sees the Son. And He who is pleased with the Son and delights in Him will delight in us as well because He sees us through, in a sense, the lens of Christ. Richard Sibbs, in his excellent book, The Bruised Reed, notes this, and what a comfort is this, that seeing God's love rests on Christ as well-pleased in Him, we may gather that He is as well-pleased with us if we be in Christ. That idea of our union with Christ so that God gives us all that He gives His Son. And He delights in us as much as he delights in His Son because we are joined with Him forever. We see as well that the Son is a gentle servant. That phrase from which Sibs gets the title of his book, a bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. What are these things? A bruised reed is a broken reed. It lasts, lacks strength. You can't use it really to do anything. You can't build a house with it. You can't lean on it. It's, it's broken. The smoldering wick is a flame that accomplishes no good deed. It just puts smoke in your house. It's useless. There's no purpose unless you're keeping, I guess, the bugs away. But that's really not what the wick is for. And so the, these two phrases speak of broken and useless people. But what you see here is that he does not break them worse. He doesn't kick them when they're down. He doesn't cast them away and reject them. But so often when we experience our own sense of brokenness, when we realize how messed up we are, when we realize how guilty we are, 
or when we failed. If you've ever been fired from a job, you know what that's like. That sense of, there's something wrong with me. I have failed in a profound sense. And there's a sense of rejection that you experience. You feel often useless. If you've been divorced, if, if someone left you that was significant, you have that same sense of brokenness and uselessness. There are many ways in which we touch upon this. Those are just two. But we have to hear the good news. He doesn't come to evaluate us sort of like uh, yesterday we were watching a movie. They had a preview for the 40th anniversary of uh, Willy Wonka, or sorry, Charlie in the uh, Chocolate Factory, um, where the girl gets on the scale. It, it wavers for only a millisecond between good and bad. It goes bad, and she goes falls down into the, into the furnace. Okay? That's what we fear will happen because of our brokenness, because of our uselessness. But that's not what Christ, how Christ responds to our brokenness and uselessness. He deals gently with these people. His goal, it apparently, is to repair them and to use them again, not to reject them. Listen to Psalm 34. The Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. That's another way of talking about a broken reed and a smoldering wick. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. So we see the compassion of Christ portrayed for us. John Calvin, who many people think of as a hard man, I don't understand why. I guess they don't read some of his stuff, enough of his stuff, shall I say. Although men therefore totter and stumble... Although they are even shaken or out of joint, yet he does not at once cast them off as utterly useless, but bears long. Okay? Not bears for a little while. He bears long with our brokenness and uselessness till he makes them stronger and more steadfast. So sometimes when we hear the requirements of God, we we think, I'm not up to the task, I can't do this, and we think that God will immediately judge us for our failure. But here's the part of the deal. He is working to make us faithful. It will take a while. But He is working to make us what He wants us to be. He's not just demanding that we be it. It's important for us to remember this. We see as well... His gentleness revealed in this. He will not... Let's see, where was I? Yeah, verse 2. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. In other words, he isn't loud. He isn't brash. He's not shouting down those who disagree with him. Sort of, if you have your mind of a pa- in your mind an image of a pastor who, who does sort of that thing, you know, I would say... Mark Driscoll. Jesus isn't Mark Driscoll. He's gentle with those who need gentleness, who need compassion. We see this as well in uh, Matthew 12, which uh, we read earlier this morning. 
we see Jesus dealing gently with the one who was ill, okay, even though it was the Sabbath day. He heals these people and he says, don't go tell anybody. Okay, and that, and that really means what they're going to do is probably tell everybody, but we're not going to go there right now. It's in light of that that Matthew quotes this text from Isaiah 42. Jesus is the one who fulfills this. It is his gentleness, his compassion, but also his lack of attention-seeking that is at play and how he deals with those who need compassion. And so Jesus fulfilled this. This is why he's not talking about Israel. He's talking about the true Israel, Jesus. And there's a sense in which our ministry must be like his. Our ministry must be one that is marked by gentleness and patience. And that's not easy when you deal with sinners. That's what Jesus is calling us to. But he's also going to, over time, make us that way. He doesn't cast us out the first time we don't do it, or even the hundredth time we don't do it. But that is where, what he is working in amongst his people. So we see that the Son is the Father's chosen servant to deal gently with those who have been damaged by sin. Secondly, I want us to see here from the text that the Son is the servant who brings forth justice. Note the repetition in the first few verses. He will bring forth justice. He will bring forth justice until he establishes justice. His task is not only about compassion, but it is also about this notion, justice, that we talked about earlier. Justice. What is justice, anyway? We talk a lot about it. Essentially, justice is about giving people their due, both positive and negative. Tim Keller notes this in his book, uh, Generous Justice, which we, is our book of the month this month. Mishvat, which is the, Greek, the Hebrew word that is found in this text when it talks about justice. Mish, mishpat, then, is giving people what they are due, whether punishment or protection or care. And so what Jesus is going to do is establish mishpat. He's going to bring about giving people what they do what they are due. And in many cases it will be punishment, but there will also be cases in which those who have been sinned against, he will bring protection, he will bring care. Now this justice is not simply about this nation, Israel. Okay, it's not tied to their social conventions, their social construct, because he will bring justice to the nations. There's a global scope that's at work because justice is not a relative thing. There, you know, there's not sort of an American understanding of justice and a Filipino understanding of justice and a Saudi Arabian understanding of justice. All of those must be compared to God's standard and understanding of justice and corrected where they fall short. There is such a thing as justice objectively and absolutely and that, was, that is exactly what he's going to bring. But now, note this, it's not going to be an easy task because it says he will not grow faint or be discouraged. Okay? 
In other words, he's not going to be a bruised reed. He's not going to be a smoldering wick. But this points to the fact that he is, by the power of the Spirit, who is upheld, he perseveres, even though it takes time, and even though there are going to be many obstacles to the fulfillment of his purpose. The establishment and bringing forth of justice. We know it's not here yet. Our spirits groan when we see injustice on the news, when we hear about it from other people we know. It hasn't arrived yet. Jesus hasn't given up. Jesus is still continuing to work to bring this about. He's going to persevere until justice is established in the whole earth. Again, the global scope of ministry. Let's look at this in four ways. First, the Spirit establishes justice by bringing the law even to the outskirts, a.k.a. the coastlands, as we see here in verse 4. Justice is connected with the law. We can't understand justice apart from God's law. We just can't. And so those who, who, who try to say, well, you know, we're in the age of grace now, they don't understand justice because they've cast aside what God has given us to help us to understand what is just how it is we treat what righteousness is in terms of how we treat other people we know, what we can give them, what we're supposed to give them, what we can take from them, what we can't take from them. Apart from the law, we can't understand justice, and Jesus brings the law even to the outermost places. It is because of human sinfulness, our sinfulness, that we need the law to show us how to treat people. And so the servant establishes justice by bringing the law. Secondly, the servant establishes justice by being a covenant sealed in his own blood. You see, in the covenant, we come under the gracious rule of God. He gives us many blessings. It's, it's a relationship that has been sealed in blood, but not our blood, his blood. He's going to be faithful to keep all of the promises he made because he has died for them, that we might receive what he has promised us. And so all of these people in the, the world are going to come, okay? The elect will come into this covenant relationship with God who is found in Christ, the covenant head, as well as the covenant sacrifice. Thirdly, we see that the servant establishes justice by being a light to the nations. He is the one who opens eyes. Again, we see the global scope of his ministry. It's not a flashlight. It's not a light bulb, but more like the burning of the sun. It will shine everywhere that all may see. Fourth, the servant established justice by setting prisoners free. And now we have a little bit of a time where we've got to put our heads, our thinking caps on, okay? Remember, the Israel of um, Isaiah's time did not have a uh, criminal justice system like ours. The penalties 
for sin, uh, disobedience, law-breaking, were generally two. Restitution, death. Okay? There wasn't a prison. What prisons were for, I imagine, as I thought about this, would be more for the political prisoner, the guy who was the threat to the king, but he's not so bad of a threat that he puts him to death yet, do you mind you? Or he needs a place to keep him until he puts him to death. But that wasn't generally where an Israelite ended up. Now, in Jesus' day, with the coming of, of uh, Roman justice, uh, some of that changed. But let's think of it in terms of the original audience. Their experience of dungeons and of prisons was not someone who had stolen something from the store because they wanted to give a Christmas gift to their kids, okay, so to speak, or because their family was starving. That's not what it was for. It was for political prisoners, enemies of the state, so to speak. But this says that the servant is going to come and he's going to set these people free. These political or perhaps religious prisoners. And if we think about it within the increasing scope beyond Israel, we recognize that there also are guilty people in there. They are guilty of treason, perhaps. They are guilty of heresy, perhaps. Some of them would even be guilty of lesser crimes and sins. The justice that Jesus brings is not just the execution of the penalties against everybody, but sometimes the setting free of people because he bears the penalty for them. The doors of the prisons, the dungeons, are opened. Remember these words of Wesley, Charles Wesley. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. The idea of a man who is enslaved to sin and Jesus comes, sheds his light upon his heart so he finally sees the hope that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He rises. He's no longer in the chains that bound him before. He's free and he doesn't go to do his own thing, but he follows Christ. I guess that really ought to be sort of a fifth point, that those who are freed are now empowered you see, the Son sets us free to love mercy and act justly, as we see in Micah 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And so he sets us free so that we can do that. He gives us the power of the Spirit so we can do that. And so we see that the Son is the servant to bring justice and to satisfy justice, setting us free to act justly. Third thing this morning, a short thing this morning. The God of creation 
brings all of this to pass. In the midst of all of this, we hear God, the Lord, speaking directly about all of this. Note the wisdom and power of God at work as he talks about creation, how he created, how he stretched out, how he spread, how he gives breath. The one who is accomplishing this is a mighty one, an almighty one, whose arm no one can hold back. Okay, it's not like playing with Plato here. We have this idea of he gives life to inanimate material. Those of us who are parents all understand what Christmas means. Assembling gifts. Christmas came early in our household, and so the other night, Amy and I had Netflix on while we are building stuff. You know, I joked with Jaden because she saw the box and wanted to know what it was, and it hadn't, she hadn't gotten it yet. And, oh, I, it was for me. It was a large Death Star is what I told her I built. <clears throat> but we all know well, how frustrating it is to build stuff, okay? Because inevitably, you, you mess something up. And I grabbed the wrong screws for one part. Jaden, don't listen. I don't want you to hear and blame me if something happens to your little dollhouse, okay? I inevitably grabbed, you know, because it was poorly marked, obviously. <clears throat> for him, it's not taking prefabricated stuff and putting it together according to the design that somebody in some foreign country wrote down for you and maybe actually used words, but maybe not. There were no words here. Okay? It's not like that. It is as though he assembles it out of nothingness. According to his plan in his head, which is perfect, and takes that nothingness, makes something, puts it all together, but that's, he's not content with that. He takes the, the doll that he's made for this house and he breathes life into it so that it lives. Breathes life into it so that it not just is aware of itself, but is aware of him. And is aware of the fact that it was made for him and for his glory and for his joy and to walk with him. That's what he's done. Not just putting together a dollhouse, but making a doll and giving it life so that it bears his image. And part of what that image means is it understands there's such a thing as justice and injustice. We know that these exist precisely because we are made in the image of God. And no matter how much unbelieving people want to eliminate that fact from our thinking, they can't. To some degree, everyone will continue to think as if they're made in the image of God precisely because they are. And part of that is from the very beginning of your existence, you know something is fair or isn't. You have an innate sense of justice. 
that evolution cannot explain. And it is put there by the God who created everything. And it's the same God who's going to bring everything to pass as he said. Now note what he said there. I'm not like the idols. What I said I would do in the past, I've already brought to to happen. And now I'm declaring to you new things that I'm going to bring to pass. He is not like the idols. He is not mute. He is not silent. He is active and speaking through his word what he was going to do. And he told Israel about the servant that was to come. In the New Testament, we have the testimony about the servant who came. He has told us. He knows how creation works because he made it. But not only that, he works in creation to reveal and establish justice through the Son that he loves. And now again, just like last week, it hasn't all happened yet. And that's why in Matthew 6, in the prayer that Jesus gave us, we continue to pray every week, perhaps even every day, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, precisely because we see injustice all around us. We have to wait as the servant continues to establish justice in a very unjust world. So our sense of justice comes from being made in the image of a just God. We recognize that sin has made it fuzzy. So the Father has sent the Son as a servant to deal gently with us with with those of us who need compassion, to bring the law to reveal justice, to bring judgment against the guilty, and sometimes to set the guilty free so they can follow him by loving mercy and acting justly. So as as you think about life today, as you think about yourself today, where do you need Christ to be at work in you now? Do you have a sense that you are broken and useless and you need his compassion? Do you have a sense that you're guilty and you need him to set you free? Do you have a sense of your ignorance and you need him to teach you? He is sufficient for all those things and more. We need to pray. Father, we thank you that you have sent a servant. Not just to serve you, but amazingly to serve us. To come to us in our brokenness and to restore us to usefulness. To come to us in our guilt and our shame that we might know pardon and honor to come to us in our confusion to shine light and to give us clarity. Father, we thank you that Jesus continues this ministry from the right hand of the throne in heaven that he continues to work. And so we ask, Father, that his good work would be done amongst us and through us. 
to those that we know who are ignorant, who are guilty, who are broken. Glorify your name. In Christ's name we ask, amen.